Hello and welcome to episode 16 of Cricket Scorers Untallied. My name is Sue Drinkwater and as usual with me I have Julia Farman. Hello Jules. Hi Sue. And Brian Rodwell. Hello Brian. Hi Sue. So who's been doing any scoring recently? Have you two been anywhere good? Uh, well I've been fortunate enough to score at uh, Tunbridge School since, you, since we last uh, met. For which is a really nice day, and also was scoring at Wormsley on Sunday, which for those of you who don't know is a a lovely ground in on the Buckinghamshire Oxfordshire border. Um, it's a private ground that was built by Sir Paul Getty when he was still alive. Um, in around ninety three, ninety four. So and it's probably. One of the most beautiful grounds that I can uh, that I can think of. Who actually is Paul Getty? He's part of the get part of part of the Getty uh, part of the Getty family. They were multimillionaires. Yeah, the oil uh, family. So, if it's a private ground, then how do you how do you get an entrance? Because presumably you can't just drive in and visit. No, indeed, um, Sir Paul Getty's. Uh, ground at Wormsley is set in his own estate so sadly he's no longer with us but the name of the team uh, carries on and the ground is still functional and lots of teams play there you may have seen it on the TV um, um, ladies women's international cricket has been played there mm-hmm. and it's just an absolutely beautiful place to play he built it with the, the, the <laughs> he built it to be the, one of the most beautiful grounds that you can imagine a typical English cricket ground it's sunk isn't it you have to walk down the steps to get onto the ground <laughs> and the pavilion is up high at the top of the bowl that's right it's absolutely it's a, a beautiful setting and did you score in the thatched uh score box well not not uh not this weekend I've, i have scored in there before i think we may have broke the record for the most socially distant scoring um uh, feet this weekend as I was in the pavilion at the top yeah, scoring at the front with a great view and my partner was scoring in the score box on the other side of the ground oh wow so, that is a long way so we're probably about Sorry. probably about 150 yards apart so <laughs> did you annoy him or something <laughs> <laughs> absolutely no the the, the the covid rules dictate you can't put two in that box and uh, so they want one scoring position in the pavilion and one on the other side of the ground. So we communicated mm-hmm. by walkie-talkie uh, all afternoon. So England or the UK has quite a few of these sort of private grounds uh, and they're most of them are beautiful. Have either of you been to any of the others? Well, I've been to one, is it Hurlingham? I think that's more like a private sports club. Yeah, in London. Yeah, where they've yeah. got, it's amazing. You walk in and there's like lawn tennis and there's croquet going on yeah. and then you find this little cricket pitch. But the trick there, if you ever get the opportunity to score there, you get these food vouchers is actually with the food vouchers you get something quite straightforward like a sandwich and then you stock up with vouchers and loads of Kit Kats because that will last you for the rest of the month. <laughs> <laughs> and also the tea's pretty good so you can actually get your fill and just have like a month's worth of Kit Kats. Well there's a tip for anybody going to her, you know? <laughs> I went there once but I don't remember any Kit Kats. <laughs> Unfortunately some of the members don't get cricket. Um, I think it's fair to say uh, having... Having once stood in the lunch queue 
and been asked why all these 24 people need to have lunch at the same time. So, <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. <laughs> so, so, so don't think they get it, some, some, of the, uh, some of the members there. Did you have a peacock stop in play? Because they have peacocks wandering around, don't they, as oh, well? Oh, wow. They do, and it's one of the few grounds as well that I know that's that's got a tree um, on, on, on the field of play. Oh, yeah. Which has actually got quite big now. You could lose fielders behind it quite easily now. <laughs> so, that's so, amazing. And I don't think that it doesn't count as part of the boundary. So, so it's actually in play. The ball does end up in this bush stroke tree. <laughs> and you often see fielders either running round the tree trying to get the ball back in or just trying to throw it through the tree, which is quite entertaining. <laughs> I've been to I've been to one um at High Clear, High Clear Castle. Um oh I can't remember now who who be, be be the Earl of Carnarvon's eleven. Oh the Earl of Carnarvon, you're right. Um and that was on, on the top of my, my bucket list for a long time, only really because High Clear is used to film Downton Abbey. So I was <laughs> like, I want to score at Downton <laughs> And then you get there in the cricket pitch, you can't even see the house from no. the cricket pitch. So it's it's not connected at all. It was still a lovely little ground and yeah. I'm I'm glad I scored there. Um but yeah, very different. There's another place in Kent which is um, out near Doddington in Kent, which is called Torrey Hill, which is in the middle of nowhere, um, uh, which is a ground attached to Robin Lee Pemberton's uh, estate, who used to be the Bank of England's governor. And that's uh, quite a nice place to go. It's a very simple setup, but it's one of those places on a, on a glorious day, it's beautiful, but if it's windy, it's not a nice place to go, but uh, but it is a, a lovely little ground. Very easy to miss as well. Lots of uh, people going there for the first time. Frantic phone calls to match managers saying, I'm lost. Yeah, these, these grounds tend to be hidden away um, and, and difficult to find. I wonder if any of our listeners have been to some some others and could let us know where where they've been and on some of the beautiful grounds, especially the private ones. Um, and I wonder if if... Other countries have similar. I guess they must. The only thing I can think of, and they're probably not private grounds, are probably Bowral, Bradman ground in oh, Australia, yeah. or the Oppenheimer ground in South Africa. Oh, Nikki Oppenheimer's know. ground. I can't think what it's called, but I don't know. Well, maybe maybe some of our South African listeners could let us know. Um, so I've been very lucky enough, not that I was intended to um, score there. I actually just ended up helping out the poor scoreboard operator who was having a bit of a, a tough time at a cricket pitch in Old Pajeta, which is in the Maasai lands in Kenya. And the ground there is kind of set in a nature reserve. Um, beautiful beautiful area and part of the world and then there's a big clearing there's a cricket pitch in the middle of it and to use a scoreboard you have to go on hay bales to reach up the top numbers of the scoreboard and it was for a match that Maasai Cricket Warriors was playing in um, we had a rhino invasion near towards the end of the game uh, where we real had div- rhinos real Animal rhinos. <laughs> not, not a cricket oh. team that's called the rhinos, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I've just never had rhino stop play. <laughs> yeah, it's a def- definite real rhino. We had to be quite careful because they have a habit of charging. 
um, but it was far enough away. But it did stop play while we we were monitoring it. And it's fortunate enough that when you've got a bunch of Maasai guys on the pitch, they kind of know how wildlife operates. So they're quite good sort of gauges of um, information on animals. But um, it's quite commonplace to have elephants and buffalo sort of wandering around as well. So it's pretty awesome place to play. Pretty warm though um, for scoring, I have to say. I'm an indie player. Beautiful and very recommended. Excellent. So our listeners, if you have scored at a private ground or know of uh, a private ground um, anywhere across the world, because we're always looking for nice scoring gigs, (laughs) um, please do get in contact with us. Um, Our Twitter account is Cricket Scorers Untallied, but you can find us at our Twitter handle at cricketscorers1, or you can email us at cricketscorersuntallied at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you about private grounds around the world. Yeah, that would be great. Thank you, Jules. Now, more recently, um, in the current test match between England and Pakistan, we had an interesting scenario. So last night, um, Pakistan were asked to follow on and their captain, Azhar Ali, was in fine form and he was, um, he'd was he scored a lot of runs um, and was not out at the end. Um, and so when they were asked to follow on, he decided that he would open the batting to continue um, his innings. And they stepped onto the field of play uh, and they wandered out to the middle and the umpires decided that the light was too bad to play, so they didn't actually start the game. They didn't actually start that innings, sorry, I should say, um, and they went off. So there was a lot of, of chatter on social media as to whether or not Azar Ali had to open the batting this morning. So when play started this morning, because he'd already gone out as the opener, did he have to do that this morning? So what are our thoughts on that? I would say... That because a ball hadn't been bowled and I don't think he'd crossed the boundary rope, really, that it hadn't started. He had crossed the boundary rope. He'd got onto the field of play. But you're right, a, a ball hadn't been bowled. So the answer to the question all hangs on when does a batsman's innings start? So had his innings already started or not? No, because he hadn't placed a live ball. So when when are you saying the actual inning starts then? When he receives the delivery? I think it's quite a unique situation because I think if a batsman comes in, this is only my view, but it's open for discussion, but if, if a player, an inbound batsman, crosses the crosses the boundary on his way in and then it rains, I think he is, in my view, he's in. And therefore, he should be not out if there's no further play. Yeah. Um, but in this case, because it's a change of innings, is slightly, slightly awkward. Um, I don't, I don't believe he is duty bound to be the opener, um, as nothing had happened. But uh, maybe mysteriously, I want to ask Sue a question: Does yeah. Does that situation change if the umpire had called play, but the ball hadn't been bowled? I think the answer to that is yes, because 
you're right that that if later on in the innings, if it's not the opening batsman, um, if somebody steps onto the field of play, then their innings has started. That is the time um, that a bats a, a batsman commences his innings or her innings. Um, but with the openers or if it's after an interval of some description, then the inning starts when the umpire calls play, which is just after they've waved to the um, scorers, let's, I hope. Hopefully. <laughs> yeah. So um, it's actually Law 25.2, and I will admit that I am now going to read this <laughs> from the law book. I don't know the laws off by heart. You don't? Um, <laughs> no, I thought don't. you read them before bed every night. Absolutely, you're like, yes. You're like the Susie Dent of Countdown. <laughs> okay, so law... Tw- I'm ignoring all that. Law 25.2 says the commencement of a batsman's innings, the innings of the first two batsmen and that of any new batsman on the resumption of play after a call of time, shall commence at the call of play. Any other time, a batsman's innings shall be considered to have commenced when that batsman first steps onto the field of play. Um, so it's it's uh, very good to note, if you do have any intervals, when a batsman actually steps onto the field of play. So if if even if it's just a drinks interval or or that maybe there's rain or something else, it, the batsman might not come out until after the interval. So you've got to, especially if you're using scoring software, not bring the next batsman batsman in immediately, um, because their innings will not have commenced. So I think that um, Azarali did not have to open the bat in and that was proved right <laughs> because he didn't open the bat in today. Um, so he came out with um, Sean Masood last night, um, but this morning uh, Masood came out with... Abid Ali. Abid Ali, okay, which is the normal opener. So, yeah, we are all right in assuming that he didn't have to open the bat in. Well, it's actually a really good point because it's something that came up in a game that I was scoring last weekend, but we went off for rain and didn't record the time that they came off for the rain and the time that they went back on. So it was a bit of a rough estimation, I have to say. It was a friendly game of cricket, but if it was obviously a bit more of a a highbrow game of cricket, not highbrow is not the right word, sorry, right? No, 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 you're absolutely right. But you know, if it was was like a league (laughs) match or something where it mattered with the overrate, um, I think that obviously that's absolutely imperative that you do record the times that you go off. Yeah. I I have to confess that mitigating circumstances with socially distant scoring and lack of score boxes at the moment, we me and me and Jules were uh, were putting up umbrellas and running for cover at the time. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I, I think that's a reasonable excuse and Technically, it's up to the umpires to to log how much time is lost and therefore inform the scorers how many overs have been lost. So all good scorers will record that information anyway and double check that the that the umpires have got it right. But but actually, it's the umpire's responsibility. Where have you been on my life, Sue? So we're coming now to the interview section of um, this week's podcast. And during uh, the week, 
Brian caught up with Paul Parkinson, who is the Essex second eleven scorer. So let's have a listen to that now. I don't like cricket. I'm joined today by Paul Parkinson from Essex County Cricket Club, who is the second eleven scorer at Essex. Hi, Paul, and thanks very much for joining us. Hi, Brian. Glad to be here. So how long have you been scoring for Essex? Well, this should have been my 16th season with Essex. Um, I started in 2005 with the second team. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's it's. Uh, I've, I've said to many people over the years of scoring, um, I only ever wanted it to be a summer in the sun to see what it would be like to score at a higher level. And, uh, yeah, absolutely loving it. So I take it you're still enjoying it then? Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's um, it's. I always say, well, it's it's another thing that I say to people. It's far better than working. It's something where you can combine a real love of the game um, with an involvement as well. No, I, I totally agree with that. I often think if I'm having a bad day, scoring wise, that I could be sitting in an office uh, doing work instead. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so presumably you started like like us all. You started at a at a club. I did. Where did you start? I actually got into cricket originally through football. Um, the One of the umpires down at my local club in Maidstone, the Moat, uh, was uh, head of the ball boys up at Maidstone United Football Club. And uh, he said, was I doing anything during the summer? So I had the summer off from football. So I went down to the Moat and started scoring down there in the first team. Um, and that was in 1982. Uh, did uh, sort of five years working up through the team's playing a little bit, scoring, doing a little bit of umpiring as well. Um, and then ended up as first team scorer in 87. Uh, I stayed at the moat until yeah. two, uh, the end of the 2000 season when I went down to St. Lawrence and Highland Court for eight years and had eight really good years down there, down at Canterbury. Um, and in that time, um, I think it's probably a case of being in the right place at the right time, but obviously got to know people around the leagues, um, got asked to score for the uh, Kent Association of County Cricket Clubs, the AKCC and the Kent Cricket Board when it came into being um, in around about 92. Did the odd um, second team game because I knew Alan Elam and used to do the boards down at the moat and gradually sort of built up experience scoring at higher and higher levels with different types of games from then on um, up to the point where I scored uh, all of the Kent Cricket Board games in the Chatham Gloucester Trophy, the five years that we were in that. Um, so met a lot of good people, good experience. And then finally, uh, I was actually teaching a scoring course when I became aware that a job was available at Essex for the second team scorer. It just applied and the rest is history, as they say. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> I think you're being very modest to say that you're, you've been in the right place at the right time. It's uh, your, your skills obviously obviously shot through. <laughs> well, some of it, some of it was because um, uh, the previous score for the AKCC side um, was the wife of one of the players who retired uh, at the end of um, 2001, and so they were uh, at the end of 91. I mean, um, and uh, they were just looking for a scorer. Um, I could. Mix it in with work, so I could get time off whenever I needed to for games. Um, was free to travel, and uh, yeah, I think I was. I'd definitely say it was the right place, right time. Um, it it was it was a very good step for me. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and it's, it's glad that you're you're still enjoying it. Mm, yeah. So when we do, when you do a, a second eleven uh, game, mm. um, 
How does that, because you've done county first 11 uh, cricket as well. I, I know that. And so yeah. you've done mm-hmm. a fair few amounts, fair few games of that. How does a second 11 yeah. game differ? The game's a little bit different. Um, with county second 11, uh, you're obviously dealing with a lot of staff players who aren't playing first team cricket. It could be first teamers coming back, um, people out of form, younger players who are trying to make their way in the game, and a lot of trialists as well. So unlike the first team game, um, the, I always say the easiest thing about a first team game is the fact that everyone wears a shirt with a name and number on it, yeah. um, which makes play recognition in 99% of the cases very, very easy. Um, with second 11 cricket, depending on the relative strength of the sides, how often you see people, um, you could be dealing with anything up to maybe even 10 out of 12 players that don't have numbers and you've never seen before. It all depends. It it can be, it's very good fun. Um, and yeah, I think play recognition is, is the biggest difference. Obviously we have regulation differences. Um, yes. So playing 12 aside with players going on and off, you need to be aware constantly of who's on the pitch. Um, but apart from that, there isn't really that big a difference. You're still dealing with um, professional players um, and you just want to do the best for them. Absolutely. Uh, presumably there's uh, there's less staff around uh, a second 11 game. Second, A first 11 game we're always used yeah. to seeing, uh, you know, team coaches, batting coaches, managers, uh, analysts, etc. I'm guessing there's less people around uh, to give you assistance if, if you need it as well. Yeah, it, it depends um, which side it is. Some sides do have, um, do travel with fairly large staff. Um, generally, though, it's a coach who tends to do everything maybe a physio. Um, obviously, normally you would have uh, another scorer, you'd have a score colleague with you. Um, so it's yeah. always good to catch up with people, even if it is once a year. Um, Absolutely. But, but yeah, it's, it's, um, you, you tend to rely more on your relationship with the players because they, they tend to sit around the scoreboard area with where you're located on most grounds. Um, so there's always people around that you can talk to or try and get information from. So, so you have more interaction, would you say, with the players at a, a second eleven level than in a first eleven game? Oh yeah, certainly a second eleven. Yes, um, there was uh, one game that I can remember where um, my colleague disappeared for a little bit because he was talking to the coach, and one of the players actually came in and turned out to be a very good scorer. And I'm not <laughs> going to say which county or who the player was because you'll probably be quite embarrassed. <laughs> <laughs> Does he still do any scoring? That would be the interesting thing. No, you see, he's busy concentrating on his playing career at the moment. Okay, but we may have a future <laughs> after that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so presumably all, yeah. most of your second 11 games are at outgrounds. Um, I know I've worked with you, for example, at Billericay. Um, yeah. Does that, does that uh, pose additional problems? Um, not really. Certainly around Essex, we've got some uh, very well-appointed grounds uh, that we use. Um, we're actually going to Hertfordshire to Bishop Stortford. Uh, we obviously use Billericay. We were using uh, Garen Park in Southend, Coggeshaw, Halstead, some smaller grounds. Yeah. Um, most of them have got pretty good setups. Uh, if I had one gripe, it would be that when clubs are designing scoreboards and positions for scorers, if you are in a scoreboard, it tends to face where the majority of the people are, which tends to be the pavilion rather than the pitch. <laughs> so some of the viewing places aren't the best, but you always find a way to work around it so that you and your colleague, at very least, can cover at least half the pitch each. <laughs> Absolutely, yep. One of the joys about the second team cricket, which 
possibly I think some first team scorers might miss out on is visiting all of the outgrounds. Yes. Because you get to see some incredible grounds, some incredible clubs. Um, and that is, again, it's, again, it's one of the joys of the job. And, and some of these second 11 grounds, it tends to be club grounds. And it's, sometimes it's the highlight of their year to have a, a, a second 11 fixture there. It's a, a sense of a, a pride and achievement that their facilities are good enough to, to, to host the game. Do you normally have a scoreboard operator or, or do you run it from PCS Pro? or for, for, Certainly at Chelmsford, uh, we run it all from PCS Pro. Although okay. the first team, we do have a, a separate operator as well to ensure that in, everything that's happening is instantly displayed on the scoreboard. Yeah. Um, with our grounds, it tends to be more that um, you as, or one of you as the home scorer is running the scoreboard, uh, be it electronic or manual. Um, and yeah, again, it's just, uh, it's one of those things. One of the things that uh, came through from the um, protocols that we're following is the request that was request this year that computer is updated first, so PCS Pro is updated first. Yes. Because it's transmitting information immediately for the video, for coaches, for people watching the game. Whereas certainly in second team, more an outground, um, my view has always always been one of those where the book comes first because that's the permanent record. Yes. The scoreboard can wait just a couple of seconds, but the permanent record has to be right before anything else is shown. No, indeed. Um, so that, that probably is one of the big differences between first team and maybe second team. Being at an outground, when you're doing things like DLS, does that cause you uh, does that cause you problems, or can that be a little bit uh, a bit intense? <laughs> I'm definitely touching my head to say at the moment, no, it hasn't. Okay. Um, because one of us generally would have had a printer with us, um, and we most score boxes have power with access to or access to power. Um, DLS hasn't been a problem. Um, a couple of times. Uh, because I've done a little bit of work with uh, Pete Williams when he was um, starting off with NV Play. Um, I actually did do a couple of remote Duckworth Lewis calculations for a competition um, and emailed those through, and that worked quite well. But no, so far, definitely touching wood. Um, <laughs> no, we haven't had many problems that I'm aware of anyway. <laughs> and, and presumably, is, is it down to you to uh, to run the sheets to to the players, sorry, to the officials and the people who need it? Or do you have someone from the club maybe who comes and does that for you? Um, it depends where we are. Uh, if we're dealing with um, a first-team game at, um, or big first-team game, um, in the past I've actually, actually I've acted as the Duckworth Lewis match manager. So I have okay. been the one doing the prints and making sure they run round. Yeah. Um, when I've been scoring for the first team, because the match manager role hasn't been the same, um, again, I've tended to do the prints and someone has done the running around for me. At second team, because everyone is in a much smaller arena almost, um, it has been easier. Just do the basic prints that you need, give them to the coaches, and then if they need anything else later, they can always come back to you and ask for them. Right. Um, so second team tends to be more the basic information. So for Douglas Lewis print, you'd probably do just the over by over calculations yeah. unless it looked like weather was going to intervene and then you could run ball by ball off if need be for both sides. It, it sounds like a second 11 coach has relies more heavily on a scorer such as yourself um, to, to produce all the facts and figures and DLS uh, for them as opposed to in the first 11 there's multiple places where they can get it from. Yeah, I think you do tend to work a lot closer with the coach because um, you are one of their conduits for information. Um, one of the good things about PCS Pro is obviously 
more and more information is available online. So through um, the live Envy Play app, um, so people can get scores and everything immediately. But right. again, um, coaches do rely on certain amounts of information. Okay, yeah, interesting. So also, Paul, I understand that you are uh, responsible for the compilation of a publication, which is the <laughs> uh, the ACS, which is the Association of Cricket Statisticians, uh, second mm-hmm. eleven annual, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, but it's um, it's a source of basically anybody who's played first class cricket or second, indeed second eleven cricket, in this yep. country, that uh, you take it upon yourself to uh, to compile some details and get information from these people. Is that correct? Yeah, the basic uh, idea of the book is that um, every single match between the second eleven first or for the first class counties for the second eleven. Plus games um, when they were playing involving the Unicorns um, or Scotland were recorded so that um, you could actually do or have a look at every single person who has played in a second 11 game between a first-class county um, and in the various competitions that we played, so Championship, uh, Trophy and C20. Most of the work, and I'll be quite honest about this, uh, my involvement in it was a little bit shocking and a little bit late in the day. Um, I'd originally had discussions with Andrew Hignall about doing some work to help towards it through working with, as I say, with Pete Williams and the NV database. Uh, By getting all of the player biography forms for every single player in the second team sent in to me, it meant that we could ensure on the NV database side, we didn't have duplications of players. Um, And during the winter, that also worked on uh, potential duplications on umpires' records as well. And it also meant that we had a consistent way of recording every new player who came in. So their full biographical details, what type of player they were, batsman, bowler, how they bowled, um, what club they played for as well, because then we could use uh, resources at Cricket Archive to help guarantee that we were dealing with the right player. Um, A lot of the work of that is still done by Keith Gerrish, um, one of our colleagues at uh, Gloucestershire, and Howard Clayton. Um, who used to be one of the scorers up at Yorkshire. And uh, I think it was Leeds Bradford University as well. Yes. Um, And they still do a lot of work every year on the compilation of the records that go into the Second Eleven annual. Um, And their work is invaluable. I came into it quite late. By collating all of the player records for the new players, I could distribute it to every database. I could distribute it to Cricket Archive make sure that Howard had all of the information available for the correct players and the correct teams. And from that, uh, Andrew Hignall then asked me to do an editorial for the handbook as well, um, which I was quite happy to do because I had an idea how to write it. Um, And then wouldn't you believe about three days after the final print was published, um, we all went into lockdown and, um, that's why it reads very differently to the season that we we're actually experiencing. No, indeed, and of course, there's no there's scheduled to be no second eleven cricket at all this year, is there? Currently, no, um, there there is some second team cricket taking place. Excellent. Although, what a lot of counties are doing is combining second eleven or staff players with academy teams. So yeah. there is still some cricket going on. Um, and what we'll probably be looking to do is to speak to the second eleven scorers in the counties and try and get some sort of record of, as we were before, any games between first-class counties to get some sort of record for the 2022 album or annual. Um, so 
hopefully something for next season. Um, which, <laughs> if it happens, hopefully, I think I think I read that next season there might not be one, so it would be uh, it would be twenty twenty two, the year after. But it's it's important to keep the record of the players ticking over, and I have to say, my colleagues out there who do second team cricket, and all of those who stand in even for odd games, have been very very good um, at collating all of these biography records for the players and getting them to me. So uh, it does help with the production of the annual. Excellent. Very interesting. Well, that's all we've got time for today. So thank you very much for your for your time, Paul. Thank you, Brian. I look forward to seeing you at a cricket pitch, hopefully under better conditions than we have in now. Indeed. Thanks, Paul. So thank you for that, Brian. Very interesting to uh, hear what uh, life is like as a second eleven scorer, and also about um, collating all the information for the second eleven annual. Now, last week um, I posed a question, which was um, it was a very simple question: um, which intervals can be moved, and when? So we're talking really multi-day cricket here that have lunch and tea intervals. So, because normally um, in a limited over game, you would take um, any tea or lunch between innings. So that's never going to move because you just take that between innings. But in a multi-day game, um, you can take tea and lunch at prearranged times. When might they move? Well, they could move because of nine nine wickets being down. Um, they'll play for another half hour, I believe. And if the remaining wicket to fall doesn't fall in that time, then tea is taken. Or else, if the wicket falls, then tea is taken between as the breaking innings. Yes. Good. Yes. Yeah, so, so it incorporates the breaking innings, the 10 minutes that you'd normally have between... Um, between innings would be in, yeah absorbed into either the the lunch or the tea interval. Look at Brian looking very smug. <laughs> if I if I look at in the law book again, there are some additional bits yeah. that you can throw into there. So, for instance, with the lunch interval, if an innings ends within ten minutes of the um, agreed time for the lunch interval, you take the lunch straight away because, as you say, you absorb that 10 minutes um, of, of turnaround time into the lunch interval then. Um, and you, on both lunch and tea, if nine wickets are down, you carry on for um, around about half an hour. Um, it's usually half an hour or eight overs, whichever is the longest, in the hope that the wicket, you'll you'll take the wicket and, and rather than just go into to lunch and then come back out and assume that the last batsman is out fairly quickly. So you'd then have another change of innings. So it's to try and, and maximise the amount of play in the day and to reduce the number of intervals. Um, but I will describe the scenario that we had that led to this question. And there are additional competition regulations that you have to add to the laws of cricket that can really complicate things. So this is a genuine scenario from my Bob Willis trophy match that was last week, not the one that I'm currently scoring. So 
tea should have been taken at either 3.40 or when 32 overs remain in the game, whichever is the later. Um, and, and we were getting close to that. But the ninth wicket fell at quarter past three. So we're now getting dangerously close to to um, the tea interval. So we had 20, 26 minutes before tea was due. So if the 10th wicket had fallen, we would have taken tea immediately because it's within... Um, uh, actually, that says, the match regulations on that say, um, if it falls within half an hour of of the interval. But... If that ninth wicket had not fallen, we had a bit of a dilemma that the first innings of the Bob Willis Trophy match um, is limited to 120 overs each innings. And when 32 overs were remaining in the day, then 119 of the first innings would have been bowled. So we would have... If they'd have taken tea at the 32 overs, then we would have had to go into tea and come back out only for one over to finish. Then we would have got to the maximum of 120. But there, but we wouldn't have gone in at 340 because the ninth wicket was, was the, sorry, we were on nine wickets. So they could have carried on for another half an hour or eight overs, but actually they couldn't. They could have only carried on for one over because they would have hit the maximum. So when it, uh, the caterers <laughs> came to me in the score box and said, um, when's tea today? <laughs> they, didn't, they didn't really like my answer, <laughs> which could be immediately if a wicket falls or, and, and I was at least able to say, um, Maybe, well, it won't be at 32 overs or 340. We'll carry on for another over past then. So when 31 overs remain in or, well, yeah, when 30, yes, when 31 overs remain or 340. No, I guess we would have gone on for one over after 340 <laughs> if we hadn't have reached 31 by then. Well, what happened, fortunately, was that a couple of minutes later we took the last wicket, so we had tea. <laughs> but, but yeah, it was really hard to describe to the poor caterers. Um, and, and the very next day, it was great because it was the final day of the game and tea was fixed at 3.40 come what may. So nine wickets, Dan didn't come into it, only because of match regulations. So does that make sense to anybody? Tell you what, this cricket malarkey is a bit of a faff, isn't it? Yeah. And and they've added an, added another caveat. I think in the last two or three years, if the umpires deem a result is possible, yes. just as an interval approaches, they can extend. Yes. In other words, if one run if one run is required, yeah, then you don't all troop off for lunch at one o'clock, yeah. or, or whenever lunch is scheduled to be. And they can do that at the end of a day. And there's enough um, there's enough odd regulations that that extend the day by by extra time, and then you can play the extra time. And if a result looks likely, the umpires can have the discretion of extending it by another half an hour. 
um, yeah, to try and get a result. So it is quite complex knowing when intervals happen and games could end. Yes. So our question this week on Ask the Scorer comes from one of our listeners and is to do with an incident that happened in a recent game that he scored. Hello, Mark. Hello, everyone. So, Mark, before you ask the question, could you just introduce yourself? Because otherwise all our listeners won't have any idea who's asking this question. Hi, everyone. I'm Mark. I'm Jules' other half. And I also am the first 11 scorer for Spencer, who play in the Surrey Championship. Thank you. And I believe you have a question for us. Yes. So I was doing a T20 um, game at Sutton on Thursday night. Um, So there's me, the Sutton scorer, who's the first 11 scorer as well, and someone doing Pitch Vision, which is a streaming service, which goes live to the insets and shows the game and also has a scoring function on it so we're about halfway into the first innings and we're at the sixth ball the over which seems to be an average ball which just gets knocked out onto leg side for one so i turn to my first scorers say what the score is which i normally check with them what the score is at the end of the over and we realize the umpires are moving the players aren't moving and a seven ball is about to be delivered now one of us who i believe is the pitch vision scorer sees the umpire signal a free hit what do you do in this situation? Can I just add at this point, bearing in mind with pitch vision, to actually undo um, an incident that you've already recorded means deleting the actual snippet of the video of where the incident happened to get rid of that scoring mark in the score book that's on the streaming. Just to be clear, none of us saw a signal from the umpire off what was we thought was a legitimate sixth delivery. But we did see him signal a free hit as the seventh delivery is just before it's bowled. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> um, hopefully our listeners will um, have some discussion on that uh, and let us know what they think. And yeah, maybe will you be able to join us for the discussion on it at the end of, of next week's podcast? Yeah, um, obviously you'll have your views on and the listeners have their views on what they think the right decision is. But I'll let them, uh, them know what the three of us decided to do after that happened. That would be great. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Sue. Thank you, Brian. Bye-bye. <laughs> Cheers, Mark. <laughs> So thank you all for listening. Um, This is the end of episode 16. If you have any comments on uh, what we've discussed today or any other questions that you want to throw at us for Ask the Scorer, then do please get in touch um, on Twitter on at cricketscorers1 or you can send us an email um, at cricketscorersuntallied at gmail.com. That's all from us in this episode. So uh, it's goodbye from me, Sue, and it's goodbye from the other two. Goodbye. Bye. Um, and and do do let us know on um, quick. No, I can't remember now. <laughs> What's our email address? Luke, cut that. <laughs> <laughs> It's been a long day. Oh, I tell you what, I can do a note on the digital. No, 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 I can remember 30 seconds away. Then do please get in touch um, on Twitter. Um, (laughs) You were saying? (laughs) On Twitter. (laughs) Stop laughing.